Monday, October 8th. It's Indigenous Peoples Day. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day, Hayes. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day, Scott. How are you celebrating? Uh, I I mean, this might be our last Indigenous Peoples Day before Brett Kavanaugh makes it illegal to refer to it as or unconstitutional to refer to it as anything other than Columbus Day. So I, I guess I will um, just besmirch the name of Christopher Columbus, I, I think. I, I was comforted this week, not comforted at all, at any point, but I do like being able to, I like doing this show. It feels like a respite from national politics, which I think may be irretrievably broken. I'm not sure the United States is governable. Yep. But I do think that the problems that we have here, and we do we have so many, but I do feel that they are solvable. I think, yeah, you've said, and you've said this online too. You've encouraged people to get involved in local politics. I'm consistent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, consistency is admirable. Uh, I mean, I I actually really do admire seeing any kind of silver lining in in what's going on because it has been tough, I think, for myself and a lot of other people to do that this past week. You, I think, would probably be in a minority of people who think that. Who look at Los Angeles and say, well, here's why this is governable. Here's why. Here's why. Okay. Why? I think uh, the institutions that we have nationally, uh, most of them are not worth saving because they're just not democratic institutions. They're like the Senate. They're like inherently yeah. anti-democratic. The fact that my <laughs> vote for a senator is worth some very small fraction of what someone that lives in Wyoming is. Uh, you know, there's no fixing that. There's no getting that to a place that is fair. But at, at the very least, it, uh, the way L.A. is set up politically is very stupid. Uh, all the lives are drawn very poorly. Yeah. But I still think just by virtue of the number of people that we have here and just like the general political orientation in the city, I think that aspects of what's wrong here can be fixed, that we can marshal enough people together to, to fix the, the stuff that's going on. I, I I like that. I like I like the sentiment. You I you don't believe it. No, I. Or I just leave that. I I think I subscribe to it. Uh, in general, it's sometimes just hard to keep that in mind. Sure. When uh when change is happening very slowly here, and change is happening very rapidly in a retrograde direction nationally, I think it's hard to. Uh, to hold on to that. But it does uh, lead very well into my L.A. story. Oh, good. Which I was telling you a little bit about earlier, which is that I spent most of the day, uh, as Angelinos are wont to do, reading about just old New York Times articles about representation in the Senate and the House of Representatives and, and how disproportionate and undemocratic our representatives are here. We have yeah. very few representatives relative to our population. Uh, I I was actually just reading about uh, old Supreme Court decisions that uh, actually made it so that the the so-called one person, one vote standard, uh, one man, one vote, it was called in the 1960s when it was uh, the decision was handed down by the Warren Court uh, that actually make it so that uh, even if you are not eligible to vote, if you're a non-citizen living in uh, in the United States, you are counted as a person who is here, who is affected by the force of law. So districts have to be substantially equal. That affects the way that we determine who gets representation, 
Uh, Los Angeles has a huge number of non-citizens living here. So I was just looking at this in, in um, the lens of our new Supreme Court um, justice who was just sworn in yesterday and, uh, and kind of being afraid of, is this something that the Supreme Court might target next? This standard that even if you don't have the right to vote, you do count and, uh, and representation has to take you into consideration. You are paying taxes. You are uh, living here with all of the consequences that that come along with being a resident of the city of Los Angeles. So you should be able to um, have somebody representing your voice. Yeah, for all the talk of, of people on that side about how people who are non-citizens being like a burden on our public infrastructure, but not, but then not giving people that have. Citizens, by the way, who have a lot of non-citizens living near them, yeah. uh, not counting those people as people so they won't have access to yeah. uh, as, as much resources uh, is uh, shitty and fucked. Yeah, I, I would agree <laughs> with that characterization exactly. And also, I would say there, there are two things that, that uh, really stuck out to me as I was doing this reading today. The first was in the 1920s, you had this uh, coalition that came briefly into existence. This was before uh, this was before the realignment of our political parties, before FDR was our president and everything. But um, you had this brief coalition that came into existence that was actually centered around this notion of denying representation to different groups of disenfranchised people. On the one hand. You had uh, Republicans who mostly represented areas in the uh, industrialized northeast urban centers and then a coalition of Corn Belt Republicans, which uh, we would typically think of as like Nebraska and uh, Kansas and places like that. You had those Corn Belt Republicans um, saying that they didn't want representation to count black people in the South who had been disenfranchised. And then on the other hand, you had Southern Democrats saying that they didn't want non-citizens to be counted. And I was just looking at this, I was like, Corn Belt Republicans, Southern Democrats, that is essentially what we would consider the modern day GOP. Mm-hmm. And it was like, this is an incipient movement in the 1920s. They just burst through the wall <laughs> <laughs> to correct you. <laughs> So that kind of struck me just in terms of the Republican Party as we know it today being founded as sort of like a modern or just a, a, an inherently anti-democratic institution of like, who can we disenfranchise? Yeah. And then the other thing that was striking to me was that I came across in the process of doing this, looking through the old New York Times uh, archives, an almost 100 year old article by a New York writer about Los Angeles substantially very similar to the same stuff that they're writing today. Uh, um, you know, the exact kind of thing that you read in the New York times and get so mad about in 2018, yeah. where it's just like a new type of city that the Angelino is proud of his, uh, sleepy, but rapidly blossoming, uh, urban environment. Some, uh, not so veiled racism about people of, Mexican origin oh, and and new cuisine, the taco. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think the article literally said uh, that um, 
newcomers from the east had transformed uh, the city from what it had been under the amiable but leisurely Mexican. So oh, uh, it was, I was just like, wow, this is a hundred years. <laughs> and this is the exact same. I mean, well, a little bit different, but it, this is a very familiar type wow. of article. What's crazy about that is the newcomers from the east were also very leisurely. They all had like tuberculosis. Yeah, right. <laughs> they came because they couldn't. They were so sickly that yeah. they could not survive. Yeah. On the East Coast, yes. Uh, what I always appreciate about your LA stories is that they are not stories. No. <laughs> they're, they're always things that you were re or just like thought experiments that you had. I don't I don't do personal anecdotes really. That requires a little bit uh more of an active lifestyle than I lead, <laughs> which I think you know by now, Hayes. My story I guess isn't really a story either. I was uh, driving the other night, I was listening to a uh, game two of the Dodgers Braves uh series. Uh and I hear I told you this already, but um I hear in the broadcast, the top of the eighth is brought to you by Prop 8. <laughs> Say no to the dangerous dialysis proposition. Say no to Prop 8. <laughs> and then, like, Charlie Snyder and Rick Monday come in <laughs> calling the game. And I just can't imagine how confusing that must be. That is, uh, like, actually... Uh, the, uh, that is like the David Foster Wallace. I know. Like, <laughs> prop eight. It's so crazy. And then inning. I heard a lot of other uh, yes and no ads. I heard a no on six ad during yeah. during the broadcast. I guess they're starting to really go hard. Yeah, no, I, I think we're, we're really coming down to the point where, uh, as our previous guest, Liam Dillon, mentioned that yes. uh, they, this is when the big expenditures happen this is when the yeah. campaigns are really looking to grab people's attention i will say i was able to convert somebody who was a no on prop 10 to a yes on prop 10 a friend of mine and okay that felt good but yeah. i think this is like the first uh probably the first month where people are actually like what's on the ballot why do i care they just can't mine just came like yesterday i think yeah. something like that um people are listening and they're upset and confused the show is la podcast my name is Hayes Davenport. This is Scott Frazier. Uh, people are like, where's Alyssa? Where's the star of the show? That is a good question. She is going to appear later yeah. in our interview segment. She right. and I went out to UCLA to talk to State Senator Scott Weiner, uh, who does not represent L.A. Is not really an, uh, an L.A. figure except for the... Uh, pretty substantial influence that he has had in our state conversation about housing and housing politics and zoning. Uh, he's just someone, no matter where you live in the state, but especially in cities, I think uh, his is a name that comes up a lot as a guy who is really trying to get more housing built in the state. And that has caused a lot of controversy. We will get, we get, we get into all that with him and like the, some, bills that he has passed into laws some bills that he did not succeed in passing and is going to come back again to try and pass a different version of and how all of those bills are going to affect uh housing in los angeles that's later before that some stuff happened this week in la scott brief me on the news tell me the news of the week uh okay so to to start with if you are living in los angeles 
if you're a rich and famous person. 2018 has been a harrowing year for you because yeah. there have been uh, there's been a roving band of miscreants, uh, like a, a Robin Hood and his merry men, um, taking from all of our celebrities their jewelry, two million dollars worth of jewelries from uh, jewelry from Alanis Morissette. Uh-huh. Uh, breaking into the house of Ray Shrimmerd and Post Malone, Yasiel Puig. They all live in one house? <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, a Jake Paul-esque party <laughs> house that they have. All these people uh, living in different parts of Los Angeles. Uh, do Ray, Ray Shrimmerd live in one house? I, I believe that, yes, they do. They're brothers. I think that okay. I mean, that doesn't. Most brothers don't live in the same house. They're, they're brothers. They're older they're, now, they're, right? They're, they're a adults. band. Yeah, okay. they're the they're the Black Beatles. I That's right. I feel like if you let them go too far apart, they're gonna they're gonna break up. One of them is is going to strike off on his own. Anyway, they do live together. They got broken into. I think one of them had like a gun held to him or something like that. Oh if, if I'm remembering right. It turns out, so the big news this week is that four of these individuals... Maybe uh, the robbers were like, I hear their house is a no-flex zone. <laughs> Fox News does a segment on like, this is what happens when you when you put up these no-flex zones. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anyone can just break in there and flex. Yeah. When you have a no-flex zone, only criminals will only flex. criminals will flex. <laughs> Um, Who else? There were lots of others, right? Yasiel Puig, it felt like every time he played a baseball game, he some uh, some new item was getting stolen from his house. Yeah, I mean, Post Malone was was one. Um, uh, let's see that they had uh, they hit up Rihanna, uh-huh. LeBron James. They oh, yeah. were going so that's, for that's right. So they got caught. Yes, so that that was the big news this week is that four members of this crew yeah. were uh, apprehended by LAPD. At least the uh, suspects, their allegedly members of this crew, were uh, apprehended by Los Angeles police. Um, and this brings to the to an end uh, an over year long saga where just yeah. like everybody was getting their house robbed. And they found a list of. Um like you were saying that I guess they'd written out other celebrities that they were going to target. And one of them was LeBron. They must've been really invested in where, where LeBron was going to go next from Cleveland. <laughs> they were like, please, please come to LA. I guess he already had a house here. Yeah. And so they were going for, uh, LeBron, Viola Davis, Matt Damon. Uh, they weren't a big fan of the cold open. Uh-huh. On SNL last week, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's probably a consequence of like, celebrity uh home reporting where so many of their addresses are just on the easily internet. found right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, that must be part of it right and you can i mean you know google maps you can <laughs> see like how could i get into this yeah you can see it from every property. every angle um yeah so uh bling ring three uh-huh. in theaters near you soon <laughs> uh, what else what else do we got from this week our uh la Sheriff's Department and so oh, yes. keeping our law enforcement theme going. Yes. I could, we could even do this as a, a Sheriff's Department and one because we have their response, which I think is uh, thrilling. The LA Times put out a story this week, uh, a major investigative report that uh, looked into the uh, LA Sheriff's Department's profiling of Latinos in their attempts to uh, get the next bigger drug bust, basically. Uh, so they are stopping people all over the county looking for people that are transporting drugs from Mexico across the border 
they refer to the five as like one of the main arterial uh, means of trafficking drugs into the country. So um, they believe that this is justified, but uh, but the Times analysis found that they were stopping uh, two thirds of the people that they stopped were Latino for no uh, traffic crimes or anything. Or just like broken taillight kind of stuff? Uh, just for like, yeah, for any reason. Right. But looking specifically for yeah. drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So are they, I didn't, so I guess I don't understand jurisdiction. They're allowed to just pull people over on the five. CHP doesn't, isn't that their domain? Uh, no. So they, they do have a, a domestic highway enforcement team. Oh, okay. Is what it's called. Yeah. Um, and they, I I actually don't know how the jurisdiction breaks down, but it does seem like they had this specific task force whose job it was to try and make these uh, traffic stops in an attempt to find drug smugglers. Okay. Yeah. So um, that is extremely troubling to more than two thirds of the people that they stopped were uh, Latinx of some description. They didn't really find uh, they, they had a couple of significant drug busts some of which are now being challenged in court even prior to um, even prior to this investigative report being released because uh, people are accusing them of violating defendants' rights, civil rights. So uh, LA, the L.A. Sheriff's Department uh, continues to be a source of controversy. What was their response? Uh, so they have this hashtag that they deploy when they are... <laughs> When they are oh under god. fire, oh my! God. The hashtag is hashtag LASD. Just the facts. And this oh is something that they uh, that they put out whenever they're under fire for anything. What was uh, the LA Weekly one? Do you remember? Oh, what was it? When LA Weekly was fighting back against the rumors that they were being taken over by like ten Orange County Libertarians, which <laughs> were a hundred percent true. Can't it, remember. Was, it was called like hashtag Truth and Facts or like something, yeah. something very. It, it was it was like heavily playing off of like calling the accusations fake, fake news. news. Basically. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so LASD, just the facts. Which, by uh, the way, is an LAPD. The Dragnet was LAPD, right? And just the facts, ma'am, is a reference to Dragnet. Yeah. That's not theirs. That's not theirs. They are <laughs> infringing on the LAPD's <laughs> copyright. Um, LAPD maybe has leased it to them, considering they seem to be stepping you know in what? it you less guys, these days. <laughs> <laughs> you guys need this a little more than we do right now. Uh, so they're just the facts. Response: This is your and one is that they this domestic highway enforcement team is responsible for uh, enforcing narcotic laws. They yeah. they have just picture after picture of stacks of heroin and cocaine. Uh, they're saying that um, basically hundreds of pounds of drugs have been removed from the streets because of the actions that they've taken. There's a lot of um, kind of like oh, I would never, I would never profile anybody in order to do this, right? But uh, but they're like we were right to be profiling these people because look at all the drugs that we got. Yeah, exactly. Well, so they they actually. Um, but yeah, they don't make mention of the report itself. Uh-huh. It's kind of just like, you know, just rolling this out here. Look at all these drugs we've... And they, there's also no mention of the fact that a lot of these drug busts are being contested in court. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, like if you take 200 pounds of heroin off the streets, but you break, uh, you violate someone's constitutional rights in order to do it, 
what have you really accomplished? Well, we got all these drugs. (laughs) Look at this big pile of drugs. (laughs) That's interesting. That's a good sheriff's department in one. We had a couple of uh, complaints go through the city council of different stripes. Uh, Jose Huizar, who represents downtown uh, council district 14, uh, got a complaint. So the mayor's office actually set up this mechanism in the aftermath of the Me Too movement. Uh, like basically every other American institution, there have been a lot of complaints about L.A. City Hall as a place that is not very comfortable for women. Yep. Uh, certainly not uh, very comfortable for women to be representatives. There's only two female city council members now. The, the, the mayor's office set up this mechanism through which people could file complaints about uh, council members or anybody who worked in City Hall uh, anonymously, I believe. Uh, and it turns out that somebody did file a complaint about Jose Huizar. I think the the actual details of the complaint have not fully emerged. I think there's a discrimination element to it. Uh, but I don't know if there were... Uh, On gender grounds. I am not sure, but I assume so. Yeah. And I don't know if there were any other improprieties alleged, although Jose Huizar has been uh, accused of those things in the past. Right. Um. And it turned out that the system did not really work for this person. Uh, the complaint kind of got just like put in a drawer somewhere yeah. for weeks, months, a long time. But the complaint, I guess, has now been acknowledged, but I don't believe anyone has been punished for it. Yeah. I mean, so as you said, I, I think so. Huizar had a, a complaint of sexual harassment. Uh, lodged against him that was very public several yeah. years ago prior yeah. to his uh, successful re-election campaign. Yep. Um, Which he said was a consensual affair. Consensual affair. This is like, that was before, by a couple of years, the uh, the emergence of the Me Too uh, mo- movement that we're in, yep. in the middle of now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was kind of only a matter of time before... Uh, that kind of came back around to, to Huizar uh, uh, because he didn't really draw anywhere near the same type of uh, the type of attention. There was like there were stories about it. It was a salacious scandal story, but it w- did not. Uh, there weren't people bringing to bear on Huizar mm-hmm. what type of individual, what type of politician that meant that he was that these uh, accusations were coming out of his office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder what we're going to see this time around because it's obviously a very different cultural moment than it was in 2015. Right. Uh, he is not up for, he's turned out. He's, he's not turned a, out. He's not That's up right. for election in 2020. As we mentioned, his wife, Rochelle, is running for that seat. Um, there's going to be a few other people running. I'm guessing that uh, Miguel Santiago, uh, the state uh, senator for, for downtown LA, is going to be running for that seems like a sure bet for that seat so it may be that he doesn't get a huge amount of blowback from it because like it's not going to be part of any campaign in the near future although it's it's definitely possible that he'll run for for something else going forward but i think there are a few i've heard uh, stories from people that from women that worked in city hall about individual council members that they felt like harassed them uh that never really came forward or, or filed anything but as we get into we haven't really had a uh, a council campaign since the Me Too movement really blew, blew up, uh, and yeah, I just think 
uh, some people that are currently on the council could have trouble going forward with campaigns, uh, stuff that hasn't come out yet, stuff that even stuff that has being approached in a different way. Um, yeah, I just think it totally changes probably the political calculus for a lot of these guys. Absolutely. Um, and I, I would say that in future, it would be great if we did a, uh, I think, super helpful for us to do an episode where we really dig into the ethics complaint process at yeah. City Hall, because I feel like it is frequently in the news. We've talked a lot about people uh, improperly donating to campaigns. We've talked about uh, bad and uh, possibly illegal behavior on the behalf of elected officials. And I don't think that a lot of people really know what the checks are in place to stop that kind of thing from happening. That would yeah. be fun to talk about. There was also a campaign finance uh, complaint. Speaking of. Uh, yes. <laughs> against uh, Nuri Martinez, who represents uh, District 6 uh, in sort of the Northeast Valley. So uh, basically what Nuri Martinez and her staff, um, the allegations before them are essentially that they, a couple of years ago, when she was running for uh, re-election, that she marked down uh, donations as coming from people who eventually, when asked about the donations, said that they didn't make them. Uh, so it is a similar campaign donation situation to... Ref Rodriguez. Ref Rodriguez. And uh, that obviously turned into a major issue that has seen him be charged with multiple felonies. Yes. And uh, his resignation. And led to his resignation from his elected position. So this is something that uh, she was, she and some of her staffers were called to testify before a grand jury about several years ago. We'll Um, see where that goes. Yeah. it, It definitely has the potential to lead to a place where uh, it is very serious for mm-hmm. her yeah anyway let's talk to scott wiener right now okay so we have a very interesting guest today very interesting and exciting guest today um someone who has been at the forefront of the housing discussions that we've had at this in the state um he is not our local state senator but he is a uh um what, he's an outsized he's an outside, role yeah <laughs> He, he well, well, the he, LA well, housing he does conversation. not. Yes, while he does not represent the people of this great city, um, his policies and a lot of the reforms that he's been pushing for will dramatically affect and hopefully change the way we address housing in Los Angeles. So we're really happy to have Senator Scott Weiner with here with us here today on LA Podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course, we are we are blessed, and I should also mention that we are in a. Uh, some kind of conference room at storage UC- facility, <laughs> yeah, slash storage facility in UCLA, uh, at UCLA, where the um, Los Angeles Business the Mayor uh, Council Summit, Summit on Housing, Transportation, <laughs> and Jobs. Well, it's the Los Angeles Business Council, yeah. we should say. But yeah, we're in this uh, staging zone for swag bags. It's where that people are- <laughs> go to like eat something really fast. Yeah. They have to go Which to might a panel happen while we're recording this. The I, think, <laughs> I, I think there's a costume rack over there. Yeah, That's for you during the show. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anything you want to change into, get more comfortable. Um, so we wanted to start, well, we wanted to have you on the show because I think we've been discussing a lot of what had happened with 827 and our questions I think are kind of about, is it going to come back? Um, but first I want you to tell me a little bit more about the biggest and most important issue uh, that you've been tackling in your role. Sure. And thank you again for having me and uh, for discussing something that's important both to LA and the Bay Area. Uh, we all we all need places to live. Um <laughs> 
So uh, just sort of bigger picture, uh, housing, it's at the heart of everything. Uh, if people don't have a place to live, if we have uh, an explosion of homelessness, if people are uh, being forced into multi-hour uh, commutes, if uh, young people can't move back to the community where they grew up because they can't afford to live there, if they're not living in their parents' basement, um, when we're, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot, we're undermining our climate goals by just creating sprawl and not building where we should be building, uh, which is, uh, you know, near jobs, near public transportation in places like LA, like San Francisco, like Silicon Valley. Uh, and yet what we've done over the years in California is we've adopted this de facto policy that it's not important to build enough housing, that housing is a low priority. And we've basically crafted the law over the last 50 years to say housing is bad, that it's a negative environmental impact, uh, that it's going to hurt your traffic uh, uh, your and, and your parking. It's going to put too many kids in your child's classroom. It's going to block your view. It's going to do all these horrible things, this terrible thing called housing, uh, which messes everything up. Uh, and we lost lost sight of the fact that, uh, that housing is actually really critically important to human existence. Uh, and so we have allowed cities, uh, neighborhoods to basically decide that we're not going to have any more housing here or we're only going to have a limited amount of housing, such as banning apartment buildings, which is what single-family home zoning, low-density zoning accomplishes. Uh, and it is undermining our economy um, where you have uh, businesses that can't find workers uh, because workers can't afford to live anywhere nearby. Uh, companies that are uh, now deciding to expand outside of California uh, because it's too expensive to house workers here. Uh, so we've been trying to... Uh, say the state needs to set standards for housing, just like we set standards for public education. We don't let local school districts in the name of local control do whatever they want, no matter around public education. That's a really important point yeah. that like so many things are controlled, very important things are controlled by really strong state laws. And for some reason, like this has yeah. evaded that, right? Yeah, we've, we've unlike healthcare, public education, other critically important needs, uh, when it comes to housing, the state has abdicated and said to cities, you do what you want. Uh, if you want to uh, exclude poor people, if you want to uh, just not have any housing, it's all good. Uh, and then we've put laws in the books in the last 30, 40 years that have had no teeth. So in the last few years, we've been beefing up the, the existing laws to make them enforceable uh, and then adding new laws, not to take over local control of housing, just like we have a lot of local control around public schools. The state didn't, hasn't taken it over, but the state needs to set standards and baselines within which communities operate. Local control and housing isn't about whether you build housing. It's, it's about how you get there. So let's talk about some of the bills uh, that you've put forward the last few years to uh, try and encourage more housing production uh, in California and in L.A. Uh, we do want to talk about uh, Senate Bill 827 a little bit. This uh, bill made a lot of headlines, one of the most uh, dramatic responses around a state <laughs> housing the, yeah, bill that, that never got out of the yes, committee. Right. Did not get out of committee. So infamous. Yeah. This was a building. Uh, this was a bill that would have upzoned, encourage more building, uh, more multifamily housing along transit lines uh, across the state. Um, got a fair amount of backlash. 
uh, including in L.A., specifically from community groups in South L.A. who are concerned about the proliferation of market rate housing causing gentrification and displacement in those areas. Uh, and of course, on the other side of the economic spectrum from single family homeowners who, like you were saying, uh, tend to discourage apartments in their anything, neighborhood. Basically anything. No matter what. And then uh, it w- it's notable too. our entire council voted not to support it. Like the yes. council itself. I think every single a city council member decided, right. said, said no. And Just I think for a lot that of their reason. justification was that it would al- have also taken a lot of their, their agency away, away in yeah. terms of uh, being able to decide what gets right. built in the city. Uh, what were your takeaways from the from the response that that you got in L.A.? Were you surprised about anything about the reception uh, here? Uh, no, no. I, I, and you know, we knew that the people, you know, people who want to preserve low density zoning in their neighborhood, uh, we knew there was going to be a, lot, a big fight there. Uh, and then on <clears throat> the uh, more progressive equity. Uh, side of things, uh, you know, we knew that there would be a discussion around displacement and affordability. And we did, uh, over the course of the uh, legislative process, we added some very strong anti-displacement protections and uh, affordability protections in. We also exempted out um, in L.A. uh, uh, Prop JJJ to say L.A. has its own approach in these areas and let's defer to that. So we did work really hard to try to um, uh, address the anti-displacement concerns. Uh, in LA, I wanna, uh, there are a few dynamics uh, going on. There, there is, of course, as with anywhere in the state, and it's no different in LA, the, the low-density single-family home uh, associations who, that really just want don't want the state to have anything to do with it. Just here, um, like half of our land mm-hmm. area I think it's is 80%. No, no, yeah. 80%. Well, if you include the Griffith Park and stuff, it's single family, <laughs> single family or single less. family. Yeah, exactly. So well, we're a lot majority. Well, in San Francisco, it's uh, 70% of the land is zoned either single family or two unit in San Francisco. Wow. little yeah. ge- seven by seven San Francisco. Right, right. Um, so we had, we had that. Um, then we had uh, uh, the pushback from the, um, from some of the equity groups uh, in LA, and uh, we are uh, have now been working with them towards next year, and, and they, you know, we uh, we've been having really good conversations, um, and uh, I very much respect where they're uh, coming from. And then you had the city council, uh, who uh, not only you know voted to oppose it, um, but s- several of the council members made. Um, <clears throat> fairly extreme statements about it, and and Be specific. Yes. Uh, Paul Kretz in District Five uh, f- feared that his uh, very low slung district would become Dubai. Yes, Dubai. Yeah. That was a good one. Yes, yeah. uh, he. I, I asked him why he said that, given that Dubai doesn't have four or five story buildings, <laughs> and and he told me that uh, he had not read. Uh, the bill, and he thought that it had no height limits in it. So, okay. yeah. So it's important. What? It's important to read the bill. Um, so, um, uh, but the here, but here's the thing, and it's interesting that some of the council members in the debate focused on this is going to lead to displacement. But the the problem is, and and I know this is a frustration uh, among some of the equity advocates with their own city government uh, that SBA 27, contrary to some of the misinformation about it. It, what it changed was zoning density, which is significant. Did not, it was very, it was implicit and then explicit in the bill, did not override local demolition controls, did not override local rent control, did not override local inclusionary uh, affordable housing requirements, didn't override 
any of that. LA has lax demolition controls, unlike the Bay Area. Um, so the, the LA does not have inclusionary. There's a density bonus program as part of Prop JJJ, which is terrific. But and there is now a Lincoln Street, but there's no inclusionary requirement. So the for the the LA City Council was not really in a great position to object to the bill on displacement grounds because the LA City Council does have it within its power to restrict demolitions um, and to enact an inclusionary housing ordinance. Uh, now, with that said, the LA City Council has also done some really great things. So uh, I, there are some terrific members, and and I'm you know I'm not here to like say this is how you should run your city government. We all run. I was a local elected official. We all make our choices, uh, but I do I do sympathize with the uh, equity uh, advocacy world in the frustration that it is so easy to tear down buildings in LA, uh, and that uh, again SB eight two seven completely deferred, uh, almost completely deferred to local demolition controls, except it put restrictions in place for rent controlled housing. And also didn't in later drafts, you added right to remain. Yeah. So we, and then we actually took uh, an excellent policy that LA has adopted. Um, So thank you to the city council and everyone else who made it happen, the right to return or right to remain. People refer to it both ways. They are sort of two different things uh right? no i think it's i my understanding it's referring to the uh, whether it's to leave and return or, or remain meaning you ultimately get your place back i thought remain sort of meant to guarantee that you would be provided housing within a certain radius of the place that you were living yeah so that's what we did, what we did. whatever yeah. the title is um that if um uh, if a local community allows for demolition and, and you become displaced the developer has to pay uh, to well, whatever the difference in rent is, so you're not paying more than you were before for you to temporarily, um, for up to, I think it was three and a half years, um, be nearby. Uh, and then you have a, a right to a unit in that building at the same rent, a comparable unit. Uh, so that was a strong protection. Uh, we also, we put, did put some demolition restrictions around rent controlled, uh, housing, uh, we uh, put in an affordability requirement tracking the state affordable housing density bonus uh, uh, program. Uh, so uh, depending on the size of the project, you ha- if that it defers to local inclusionary. But if there is no local inclusionary, then, you, then we would put a default uh, inclusionary in. We also put in place um, a uh, no net loss uh, provision, which was, I know, an important um, important item, particularly for some of the LA um, advocates, uh, so that if um, there is a loss of what is currently affordable, what, you know, affordable being broadly defined, it could be, um, you know, that's just low low rent. Uh, they that affordable unit must be replaced. So if you let's say there's an eight unit building that's being torn down in LA to build a hundred units, so it's a net increase of. 92 units, but let's say those there were was all low-income people living in those eight units. Those eight units, as part of the 100 units, must be maintained as at the same affordability levels. Uh, so we we actually, I, I want to really, the LA advocates were very, even the ones that were critical of the bill, people were very forthcoming with us in terms of giving us ideas. And we, um, we borrowed heavily on those ideas and we're continuing to work with those advocates. I was just down here earlier this week had a great meeting with uh, Act LA and and the Alliance for yeah, Transit. Yeah, and it was a really it was a really positive meeting and and I think we committed that we're going to work hard to to collaborate. 
And I will say, I saw you earlier this week at the NACDO conference, the, I'm going to get this wrong again, National Association of City Transportation Officials. Exactly. So you had the same, a a great conversation, I think, with discussing this on the stage for all these transportation advocates and people who are working in the cities. And I heard so many people in the room being like, you know, how do we make this work? This, this is what I need to take back to my state. Like my, so you've, you've inspired this dialogue. Um, and maybe that's the point of introducing legislate, you know, it's giving us a place to start and then it's getting everybody talking and then getting the right people in the room. But I felt like everybody in that room felt like they needed something like that in their own city, in their own state. So for that alone, you've started a conversation that's could dramatically change the way we do this. Well, it was a team effort to start that conversation. Um, a lot of great people working in this space and, and what, you know, I've always been pro-housing, but what I think really empowered me um, over time on the Board of Supervisors and then in Sacramento to be very, even more vocally pro-housing um, is the the rise of the of the YIMBY uh, movement. And not, not all YIMBYs call themselves YIMBYs, but so it's more of a, there's the, the formal movement, but there's also just a change in attitude where you have disproportionately younger people, um, but not all. Uh, younger, there are plenty of older people, but people saying, "Hey, why are we? Why do we keep doing this? Why? Why? Why are we so opposed to housing? Why? Why are we trying to keep people out of our neighborhoods?" And then for young people in particular, what's my future? What is? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to raise a family? Uh, and and so it, it's really shifted the dynamic and created enormous political space for people, you know, like me. Uh, like you know, other members of the legislature and more and more even city council members to say, I'm pro-housing and we need to have more housing. Are you able to tip us at all to anything that's coming in 827 part two or some of the directions that you're thinking about moving in? Um, we're, uh, you know, I can't say too much. Sure. I will tell you, you know, we're definitely looking, um, you know, taking a very hard look at, um, you know, anti-displacement uh, provisions. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we want to make sure that we are, that housing policy, uh, should be additive to people who are living in a community, not replacing people who are living, uh, in a community. And we have to be intentional, um, because otherwise, you know, we see what has happened and what, and what will happen if we're not intentional about, um, about, uh, avoiding displacement. We're also, uh, looking at, uh, for census tracts and areas that are particularly uh, um, communities of, uh, I don't know, I've heard communities of concern, whatever people, you know, communities where that are either experiencing intense gentrification or that are on the precipice with significant uh, low income uh, populations uh, that, you know, maybe uh, treating those areas uh, a, a little differently and maybe giving some time uh, for them to do local planning, uh, and just trying to, you know, understand, you know, people, we got criticized that, oh, this is a one size fits all cookie cutter approach to housing. Well, of course, all state laws in a sense are one size fits all. It's make, you're making law for the whole state. And this is a statewide issue that requires a statewide approach, um, to at least set standards. Uh, with that said, uh, you know, we, we do want to be sensitive to, um, different uh, kinds of community needs. Uh, and so we're, we're taking a hard look at that. And I think one thing that w- that w- always kind of troubled me about it was that it 
if you didn't, if you had a neighborhood that had successfully fought transit, like one of these single family, uh, you know, dominated, uh, neighborhoods that had successfully kept buses out of their, or, or rail out of their neighborhood all these years, um, that they were kind of exempt from making any changes. Yeah, that was a, a, a criticism. It was it was interesting because there are all sorts of maps that came out about what was covered and what wasn't. And it was disproportionately lower income communities. Now, I want to say a few things about that. Um, first of all, in terms of the low income communities uh, or communities of concern uh, that were included within the geography of SB 827, um, it, what what didn't happen, and I've been told is going to happen, it's much harder. It's not good enough just to say, um, here's the map of where it's covered and not covered. You have to do a zoning overlay. Because if it's a community that's already zoned dense, it, it, the bill really doesn't affect it. Right. So, for example, in San Francisco, uh, the Mission, Chinatown, Tenderloin, these are neighborhoods that are clearly low-income neighborhoods. They are already zoned denser. <laughs> than SB827. Yeah, right. uh, and various parts of, of downtown LA are, are the same thing. There are exceptions. South LA is a lower income community that has you know a lot of single family homes, swaths of Oakland and other parts of the East Bay. So I'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule, but when you what, if you, I suspect that once you do the zoning overlay, you're going to see that the higher income communities within SB827 are going to be more impacted than you thought and the lower income communities, at least a lot of them, are going to be less impacted because they're That's already right. zoned for density. Yeah. Um, now, uh, there were quite a few wealthy communities that were within SBA 27. Um, you know, along the whole Caltrain corridor uh, in the Bay Area, you know, wealthy communities like like Palo Alto, like Burlingame, and so forth were all in there. In the East Bay, around all those BART stations, wealthy, wealthy communities that were in there and they were pissed off about it. Westwood. Beverly Hills was in it around the expo. Yeah. Which is what we followed up with that expo line plan. I think it was that really brought to light a lot of the recommendations yeah. and, and you also saw how they got fought locally. Again. Yeah. And, and so a lot of those communities were in SBA 27. Now with, we're, we're looking at, are there, you know, for example, if a community doesn't have the transit, but has a lot of jobs, um, should that exactly. be included? Yeah. Now we don't want to include if there's a, community, whether it's wealthy or not, that has, that has no transit and no jobs, mm-hmm. that's, that's not a sustainable land use. Term. But if you have jobs, but not good transit, um, it, it's not as ideal as having transit, but at least people are going to drive shorter distances to their right. jobs. So we're looking at all those could things. generate the transit to, yeah. Uh, yeah. to build up yeah. those, Eventually, those yeah. job centers. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's get into another housing bill of yours uh, that did pass this year is now a law SB 35. Uh, this is a bill that a law now that hopes to force cities to build more to meet their housing goals under the regional housing needs assessment, mm-hmm. which is a standard that every city sets for like the, the amount of housing that they want to build. Um, if you talk a little bit about SB 35, uh, and maybe if we could get kind of a scorecard for it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're always looking for <laughs> scorecards. Yeah, uh, SB 35 was our housing streamlining bill from 2017 to, that basically said, that provides that for communities that are not meeting their ho- state housing goals under the regional housing needs assessment. Which is almost uh, all of them. Uh, it is, for low income, it's 97% of cities. Um, for uh, market rate, it is two thirds of cities. 
Uh, and uh, Both beyond F, I think, is what the grade would yeah. be. I do think it's worth pointing out that Beverly Hills passed its its housing goals yeah. because its housing goals are so incredibly low. Yes, and we'll, I, I, I'll, we and we we dealt with that this <laughs> okay. year. We'll get back to um, you, Beverly so, Hills. So basically, for communities that are falling short of their goals by income category. Um, they become streamlined, and some people said, "Oh, this is uh, this is a, a punishment for not meeting your housing goals." No, I view it: housing is never a punishment. Housing is a benefit, and so that's why I try to get away from the whole housing is bad. Housing is a benefit. So if you're not meeting your housing goals, we will help you meet your housing goals uh, by streamlining housing approvals. And streamlining means uh, that there are no discretionary approvals. That if it's zoned X. Uh, that you will give a ministerial permit for X. You can do up to three to six months of a design review based on your objectively adopted design standards um, as opposed to willy-nilly whatever design standards I think of in my head. Uh, But you can't, no CEQA, uh, no discretionary review or appeals, no, no conditional use. Uh, if you zone for 20 units on this parcel, if you said as part of your housing element, hey, we're going to build 20 units here, it can't be a fake 20 units because you're going to make them go through a five-year process yeah. and then knock them down to six units. You have to give them a permit uh, for the uh, whatever you zone for. We're already seeing uh, it's starting to, you know, it takes time for people to figure out, you know, how to do it, but we're seeing projects move forward. The, the big uh the gorilla in the room uh, or the elephant in the room, that's not elephant. That's sort of a, a bad thing. The the 800-pound gorilla yeah. uh, is the Valco project in Cupertino. Cupertino yes. is in the South Bay uh, by San Jose, Apple headquarters. Um, they, they attract an enormous number of jobs there, but very little housing. Uh, it's a, it's a dead shopping center that needs to be redeveloped. The, the, it's been fought and killed for years and years. Um, and so Cupertino was streamlined. And so the developer went in, uh, and now and pulled the streamlined SP 35 permit for 2,400 units of housing, half of which are affordable to people making up to 80% of area median income. Uh, so that, uh, is moving forward. They have. Uh, we've heard a lot about the Cupertino project. I think there's one in Berkeley yep. as well that's going up. Uh, we complain a lot about the Bay Area bias on this on this show. And there, there are two <laughs> two affordable housing projects in uh, San Francisco, and there are a bunch of duplexes uh, we've heard in the North Bay of the Bay Area. Okay, in but L- let's in go L- down here. Yeah, down bring LA. us down here. Uh, so in LA, and in LA, like San Francisco, um, our big cities have tended to meet our market rate RENA goals, but not low income. So you have to do because of that. It's biased. Uh, the bill becomes biased towards low income. So you have to have at least eight, uh, 50% of your units affordable up to 80% of area median income. In LA, we're aware of two projects that are uh, taking a hard look at it. They haven't applied yet. And I don't, so I'm not at liberty to say what they are, but they're, they're good uh, projects with a lot of affordable housing. Um, and, uh, and then we've also, uh, and this is, uh, my, one of my, 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 um, regret about SB 35 is, I was kicking myself that we didn't put a provision in that either the developers of the city would be required to just send a notice to the state every time it's invoked so that we have comprehensive data. We didn't do that. Mm. Um, it doesn't hurt the bill, but it, you know. You like a thermometer, or like a bell that yeah, rang you in your yeah, office. That's what we need. Now we have to rely on like the network of like land use professionals and city <laughs> okay. planners to like alert us. Um, uh, you know, and a lot, it's not just the big projects. There are duplexes that right, are being. Right, small, or, small ones. In, in my yeah. district in Daly City, there was a developer who 
um, uh, told us that he wanted to build an eight, an eight unit project that he had been stopped for years and years, wow. but he was going to invoke SP 35 and build it. Um, so it, it's going to, um, over time, I think, um, spread around and people just have to learn. It's a different way for city councils to operate too. And, and it just creates a lot of angst, but I think we'll get past that. I mean, that that's, that's the goal. And that, I think that's something also that's been talked about and, and was just discussed on the panel that you were, were on was this idea that we had to have the state step in and say that, uh, city council members couldn't veto supportive housing projects in their districts. And that was something that was uh, introduced by your, your colleague, um, David Chu, who was on stage mm -hmm. with you. Um, so do I mean, do you think that this is it? Is it going? And and I actually also heard our our mayor say the other day that we we need more help from the state when it comes to things like transportation, like congestion pricing or reducing our vehicle miles traveled, mm -hmm. which is a big climate issue that we've talked about recently. I mean, do you do you think that it's going to have to come down to the state stepping in and perhaps our new governor being mm. the one who leads this? Well, I think on housing, uh, and again, this is not, despite what some say, a complete state takeover. I wouldn't advocate that. I think in, in local control, in so many ways, local control is preferable. Um, but there are times, especially when you're in a crisis for something as important as housing, where the state has to step in to set at least boundaries, which is what we're doing. And so I think we're, we have a lot more work to do there. Um, I don't want to be presumptuous about who's going to win the election. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of Gavin Newsom and, uh, and, 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 and Gavin has been very clear that this is a priority and his, actually his, his wife, um, Jennifer, uh, uh, Siebel Newsom, who's amazing on many, many levels. She has now announced that her priority, um, around, uh, uh, as a as the first lady, which is well, sort she's of going to change it to first person. I know, Did first you lady, see? Or first, first, uh, yeah, what's first it lady. Yeah, first lady. It's still <laughs> odd to me that we use that term, yeah. but I so think be that was it. her first order of business is first person or whatever, and yeah. then then housing. How yeah. about just the first the first uh, kick ass person because yeah. she really is. But she's announced that homelessness and affordability are her priority. So I think we'll see a lot of good things. Uh, the state is doing more. We passed uh, SB one, the largest transportation funding measure in the history of California. Uh, uh, Five point two billion dollars a year, about. 20% of it. Um, I, myself and uh, Senator Ben Allen uh, teamed up and fought really hard to increase the dedication to, to mass transit. So about a billion a year goes to is new funding for public transportation, California. Uh, and that, of course, the, the right wing has tried to repeal it and ban new gas tax increases via Prop 6, which appears to be uh, failing at the moment. And I will be like so happy if it fails because 5.2 billion in new transit and roads investment is is just huge. It'll move the move the needle. And then uh, we, uh, um, I have, have been working with uh, Assemblyman Richard Bloom. We want to do, and we're, I, I need to circle back with him. I'm hoping we'll do it next year um, to authorize uh, San Francisco, LA, and Santa Monica. Uh, to pilot congestion pricing because right now, uh, right now, don't tell Santa Monica. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but right now, uh, congestion pricing being. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, we can you explain that. Yeah, so there are many kinds of congestion pricing, including ones that are legal now. Like you can in the Bay Area, we charge more for bridge tolls during rush hour. There are many ways, but in terms of full-on congestion pricing, it means you have a zone that is particularly congested, often a downtown area. Um, and you have, it's a lot of infrastructure that you have to do to tag people's cars, um, that you have to pay a toll to enter into that geographic London area. Is the classic example. London, Stockholm. Yeah. And uh, London has generated so much money that they have dumped it back into their bike and transit infrastructure. And they now have more 
non-cars going into mm-hmm. the city center than cars. And when you're in London, I, I actually, when I'm, I have a good friend who lives in London, when I'm visiting, I tend to take the buses as opposed to the tube because the buses are so fast because there aren't that many cars. Um, and How so, could you possibly do that? I'm it's a bu- amazing. I'm a, I'm, I know. I'm a bus person. I love That's bus. Oh, we're bus people too. Yeah. We love it. Um, but uh, it's right now that kind of congestion pricing is illegal in California. And so we want to give these three cities the opportunity if they choose to pilot it. We're not, no one's being forced to do it uh, and, uh, and then see what happens. But people get really um, up in arms about sure. congestion pricing. And it's, they've been trying to do it in, in Manhattan for years. It keeps getting killed. Uh, I do want to ask, we, this is obviously a very long process, coming up with the amount of housing that we need uh, to, to match the, the deficit that we've created in this state. It's going to take a really long time. Uh, we talk a lot about on the show about the need for various like renter protections to stop the outflow of people being evicted, people not being able to afford their housing, people becoming homeless, especially in L.A. What do you think we could we should be doing in the short term uh, until we have sufficient housing to meet the needs? Mm-hmm. We have Prop 10, obviously, is on the uh, state ballot this year uh, to yeah. increase uh, city's ability to impose rent control. Uh, like what kinds of things uh, can we be yeah. uh, can we be doing in the meantime? Sure, and and it really is that's a really important perspective that there is that fundamentally this is a long term project to solve the problem, but there are short term things we need to do. Uh, and sometimes people will say, "Well, I know that you're saying we need more supply of housing, uh, but to really move the dial through via supply, it's going to take could take twenty years." Uh, and even though query that we, we actually you actually start seeing results within a few years but but even assuming that it's going to take 20 years to deeply move the dial um, you know th- then we should start today uh, as they say the the best time to uh, plant a tree was 20 years ago the second best time is today so the fact that it might take a generation to solve this uh, should not delay us in fact it should really motivate us to make sure that our kids and grandkids don't experience the same problems that we're experiencing. So we need to really focus on that long-term structural fix. And But people are suffering today with evictions, with homelessness, with overcrowded housing situations, with mega commutes. And so we do need to um, do short, uh, take much more immediate steps. Uh, we need to uh, invest heavily in housing subsidies of various forms, uh, in inclusionary housing, which is the fastest uh, way to deliver affordable units because 100% affordable projects, which are great, uh, just take longer. Uh, and uh, we need to... Uh, protect people in the housing that they have uh that and so that is about eviction controls rent control which i support uh um, demolition controls and so forth right right to remain all those kinds of uh approaches um in terms of rent control um i do think uh you know i I don't know what's going to happen with prop 10 um if prop 10 passes then we'll see a lot of local fights about the scope yeah, yeah. scope yeah, of rent it control. it doesn't solve the problem right. completely. It, yeah, um, it'll be about. the next, uh, it'll, it'll simply devolve control to the cities. Um, I would, uh, if Prop 10 doesn't pass, I, I'm hoping that we can take a run at brokering a reform of Costa-Hawkins in the legislature. We've had a political failure in the legislature, which which led to the repeal effort with a lot of money being spent. Uh, there should be a way for uh, new, you know, I, I do have concerns about putting rent control on brand new buildings right out of the gate mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, I think that could have implications for financing new apartment buildings. But I, but I also think it's arbitrary to have this uh, 1995 uh, cutoff uh, in San Francisco. It's 1979. Anything, 
Yeah. And so that is arbitrary. So we should have a, a moving date. Right. So yeah. give people like a rolling like period of time. Um, and then for single family homes, uh, right now, Costa Hawkins prohibits rent control in single family homes. Uh, and, and that I get that for people who own their own homes. But if you're talking about a company that owns 100 or 1,000 homes, Black Zone yeah, being yeah. the primary example, it's yeah. effectively a big landlord. Like there, if we can find a way that's enforceable, which is hard because people can create many LLCs. But if there's a way to do that, I think that there's a good argument that that kind of mass single family home ownership should be subject to rent control. Real quick, uh, we want to talk about an effort you've been doing that we haven't that hasn't trickled down to LA at all yet, which is a safe injection uh, yeah. sites for um, people who have addiction problems. Yeah. Uh, this was a bill that was you put forward that passed through the legislature that was vetoed by Governor Brown last week uh, to basically allow supervised locations mm-hmm. where needles would be provided, where people would uh, be able to inject safe in the safe environment. Talk about why you like why you think this idea works. Uh, why cities uh, would benefit from safe injection sites? Uh, yeah, so uh, we we have a you know in San Francisco, but it's really in a lot of places. Terrible problem with between opioids and also meth, and people, uh, particularly people who are homeless, but not only who are shooting up uh, in public, uh, and people who are uh, in very uh, unsanitary, unsafe conditions for themselves. Uh, for, uh, terrible for neighborhoods when you have someone shooting up on your front porch or you're walking your kid down the street and there's a needle on the sidewalk or, or a guy there with or a woman with their a needle hanging out of their arms. People, people, you know, in San Francisco, we, ha- we have, uh, I think, 12 or 15 full-time uh, funded employees uh, who their only job is to pick up needles. Uh, and uh, and so it's it's a real problem. We have overdoses that are happening. We have people who are using dirty needles despite our needle exchange program and, uh, and, and people who need to get into uh, recovery or at least be offered those services. And so what a safe injection site does is it brings people off the streets into an, uh, into an indoor, safe, healthy, clean environment with clean needles where you can swab their heroin to to tell them if it has fentanyl in it, to say, hey, you might not want to do that because you might die if you inject that. Um, we can, if someone is experiencing a problem or a potential overdose, you have a nurse right there to immediately stop it. And there has never been an overdose death or anywhere in the world in any safe injection site wow. ever. Where are some um, of these places? Uh, they're in Australia, like in Sydney, uh, maybe Melbourne, uh, in uh, Vancouver, but other Canadian cities like Toronto are going to adopt them various cities in, in Europe, nowhere in the U.S., and they, uh, they reduce infections, uh, they, redu- they el- elim- you know, overdose deaths go down, crime in the surrounding area uh, goes down, and there is a high rate, over 50% of the people who go there eventually enter recovery services because you don't, you know, you, you don't force, you never mandate services, right, that right. doesn't work, but you just, every time they go in. Do you want to talk to a social worker? Do you want to talk to someone about maybe getting into a treatment program? People, ultimately, most of them say yes. And, and the recovery rate is quite positive. So the, the, the science is irrefutable. And uh, we were, I am a big fan of Governor Brown. I uh, agree with him on many, many things. I just profoundly disagree with his veto of this bill. And his veto message relied more on law enforcement's assessment of addiction when law enforcement with all respect, is not an expert in addiction. We need to move away 
from this notion that addiction is a criminal issue. It's not. It's a health issue. And health professionals and, and the data are crystal clear that safe injection sites work. So um, my, uh, the lead author of the bill and my partner is uh, Assemblymember Susan Eggman from the Stockton area. She's fantastic. She and I have already both said that we want to do this again next right. year. And, and, and Gavin Newsom has said he's very open to it. So we're going to keep taking another run at it. And this would give cities permission, obviously, to put these in place. Yeah. Well, the bill, the bill initially, yes, permission. The bill initially was like six or seven counties, uh, including L.A. County, uh, giving permission. Uh, what I've learned... Uh, is that um, uh, that even though uh, cities and counties fight us uh, about taking away their local control on housing, um, they also get mad if you try to give them local control. So when we tell them, hey, we want to give you the local control uh, to uh, let your bars stay open later, or you want to give you the local control uh, to do a safe injection site, if you decide that people still get upset, and right. sometimes, of course. People, and so, uh, and so, we ended up uh, to get the bill passed. We had to narrow it to San Francisco, so it's a three-year pilot program in San Francisco. Um, it's fine because San Francisco is the only city that was really prepared to like move forward right. quickly. Right. And so I think our, my, some of my colleagues who were undecided said, you know what, let's let crazy San Francisco pilot it out. Um, you know, we'll, we'll show that the sky doesn't fall, that it works, and then we can expand it to other cities. And since we're talking about losing bills, but you brought it up, the, the 4 a.m. Yeah. last call. I mean, are you devastated? I'm disappointed. I mean, that bill, <laughs> Can you it's explain been a, real quick? <laughs> it's been a 16-year project. Uh, my predecessor, Senator Mark Leno, was the, um, you know, introduced that bill multiple times. I've now done it twice. And we keep getting further and further. It's a bill, uh, you know, California, unlike 23 other states, California has this statewide uh, alcohol service. A bad law. Yeah. <laughs> Shall end at two o'clock. It was adopted in 1913. Um, it applies whether it's downtown LA or you know rural Fresno County. It's all the same. Uh, and we want to do what many other states do, which is to say, let's let cities decide for themselves. We'll keep the 2 a.m. But there, are, we, last year the bill was any city in the state. Uh, this year I limited it to the nine cities whose mayors or city councils said we want to do this, yeah. including LA and Long Beach and West Hollywood. And, um, uh, and, you know, with, they have to do, uh, enact a, an ordinance, they can zone for it, only allow it in certain areas or only Friday, Saturday night, or only on special events. They, they have to do a public safety plan, transportation plan. All the liquor licenses still have to go through the same process. There are a lot of guardrails here. Uh, and so, uh, this year I, I was able to bipartisan support yeah, there yeah. and we, we got it with like basically a two thirds, almost two thirds vote in both houses onto the governor's desk. Um, we, uh, you know, and he, I think his veto message said that it was going to lead to mischief and mayhem. Mm -hmm. Those were his words. <laughs> and, uh, see, and that CHP had told him it would increase drunk driving, even though that is factually false. Um, when you look at the actual data, there's no evidence that supports that. People may drive drunk at 3 a.m. instead of 2 a.m., uh, but when, whenever you close your bars, some people will act uh, recklessly and yeah, dangerously. And, yeah. and so anyway, we are... We're, uh, uh, I, I've known Gavin Newsom for 20 years. I don't want to speak for him on this bill. He is 
someone who I think deeply understands nightlife. And he uh, likes to party yeah. is what you're saying. Well, he's a, he's a, <laughs> Je- Jennifer has, has settled him down. He is now a family man with four children. And so, uh, she, yes, so Jennifer is definitely, uh, she's been a, a positive force in Gavin's life and they're a great uh, partnership. But uh, I think he will um, be, I hope, more open so to that. So that's bill. coming back as well. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, oh, no that's yeah. one that I'm not letting go of. I would oh, miss yeah. the Koreatown speakeasy a little bit. That's the one thing yeah, that would go true. away where I they mean, put a clothes sign on the door, but then you just you got to know yeah. how to knock. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah Wiener. We really appreciate it. Did, did you get a swag bag? We got a whole yeah, box got, right here. We've got a whole bunch of swag bags, the tote, branded content. The tote bag has a tote bag inside as well. If you, if <laughs> you like you. one of those. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much, guys. Thank you. Interesting conversation, Scott. Are you looking forward to listening to it? I am I'm actually thrilled. I'm ready for it. Uh, I do want to say one thing that we, since we talked about um, some of Senator Weiner's policy positions in San Francisco, we talked about the safe injection sites and things like that. Uh, I do want to talk about something that he got in the news for up there this week. Uh, he announced that he was not going to be supporting uh, Prop C which is a ballot measure in the city of San Francisco that is a gross receipts tax uh, on companies based in San Francisco that make over $500 million in revenue a year. Uh, It taxes them and it uh, provides the funds from the tax to homeless housing and services and other stuff to solve the homeless problem in San Francisco. Uh, This is very similar to the... um, Seattle head tax uh, that lots of people were talking about earlier this year that uh, was voted yes on by the people. But then uh, Jeff Bezos uh, threatened to like take Amazon out of Seattle or not finish uh, the whatever geodesic dome he's uh, building in the (laughs) middle of the city. uh, And the Seattle City Council overruled it. Scott Wiener uh, and mayor of San Francisco, London Breed and State Senator David Chu uh, all came out against Propsy at the same time. I think this is really disappointing. Uh, I think Propsy is good policy. I think uh, businesses in uh, like giant revenue businesses in America have gotten a lot of handouts the last few years. I think if we can shave off some of that extra revenue and profit mm-hmm. and put it towards helping the conditions in the places in the cities where these companies are based. I think that's a good idea. I saw, I read the, the rationale for, I believe it was London breeds, uh, mayor breeds rationale for being opposed to this, uh, prop C. And it was like, if, if this passes, these businesses will see their, uh, their taxes double overnight. And I was just like, Okay, <laughs> it's, a, it's a start. I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't seem, uh, you know, you have a the worst probably homeless crisis in the history of San Francisco. I would imagine the same way it's the worst homelessness crisis in the history of Los Angeles right now. Uh, we got to do it. We got to do it. You know, yeah. the people who have money need to pay for yeah. these kind of services. I think if you are committed to housing, 
as Senator Weiner, housing for all, that that's his primary policy platform. And he talks all the time about how the market will not provide housing for lower income people, particularly homeless people, right. partic- uh, particularly homeless people who need permanent supportive housing. The market is not going to show up uh, and provide housing for those people ever. So you have to take it. You have to take yep. this money uh, however you can get it. Yep. Uh, and that it should come from upper income people. It should come from upper income businesses. It should come from the most profitable businesses, yes. private corporations on the face of the planet. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. I would be a little sad because I do think this could be the final push uh, that uh, puts uh, Twitter into insolvency finally. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think my life would be objectively much improved. So if you real, if like you know in your heart that it's time to kill Twitter, uh, so <laughs> vote yes okay. on Propsy if you live in San Francisco. And I promise we will never talk about San Francisco again on this show. We'll be back next week with another episode of LA Podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.